Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features the Jack Quartet. We hope you enjoy. and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. My name is Dr. Rosanna Moore, and as ever, I am your harping host. Today, my wonderful partner in crime and co-host is our incredible producer, Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. Hello, my dear. How are you this afternoon? Hello, I'm good. It's uh, it's beautiful in Vermont. It's oh, you're in Vermont. I'm so jealous. I'm incredibly excited that we are introducing John. Pickford Richards, a member of the Jack Quartet, uh, described as the New York Times as our leading new music foursome. They are an incredible tour de force and have been doing just incredible things in the world of chamber music and in particular as a string quartet. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So let's get started. Can you talk to us about when and how the Jack Quartet started? Yeah, uh, so we uh, started, we sort of grew out of being students at the Eastman School of Music. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and we were all sort of different ages and uh, the quartet came together slowly over several years and we decided to really go for it in 2005. Um, and, we, and like I said, it was slow. We would have like one concert a year and then five concerts a year. Um, and then we've slowly built our way up to now, which is full time or around 70 concerts a year. Oh, heavens. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah but I, I, a lot of things have happened that I never expected. Like I learned a lot about business and um, like logistics of producing concerts. Uh, you know, when we got started, I was just just playing viola. Great. I was about to say you are the viola player and we always love when we have fellow viola players on the podcast. So I'm sure you and Adam, you and Adam are going to talk shop and it's going to be delightful. (laughs) Yeah. So um, one of the things that uh, both of us are particularly interested in learning uh, about the quartet is um, is you had recently actually a couple of personnel changes. And um, so we were interested in hearing about how you ended up bringing both Austin and Jay into the fold. Um, and then wondering if you could speak a little bit about how the ethos of the group itself either did or didn't change um, once you had those new members. Yeah, well, I mean, having any personnel change is really scary because you don't know going into it how it's going to turn out. Um, and then uh, we had been talking about it for many years because Ari and Kevin, who were originally in the quartet, um, both, both had just been talking about wanting to slow down and t- travel less. And, uh, and so it just became sort of the best idea we thought to do it at the same time rather than staggered and uh we had auditions and it was all new to us we had never even really considered any of it and i was i mean i was really nervous about change happening but i was really confident in it being great because uh the 
Austin and Jay were both really incredible. We knew them beforehand, and um, I wasn't worried about it. I was just scared of the change. I mean, I think we did change as a group. Um, I don't feel like a different person myself, but I feel like our um, our atmosphere and our vibe, um, and and our and even our sound and the way we play, I think is is really quite different. Um, even if the mission and the purpose of the organization is fundamentally the same. Yeah. Did you find that um, when they came in to the group that they kind of started to pull you in kind of different directions in terms of how you conceive of sound or how you conceive of, of approaches to things? Absolutely. I mean, that, that stuff is so, uh, sen not sensitive, but um, it's like hard to put into words, you know, the, what, how sound is different from other sound. Uh, but I think that when you play so much with, with the same players over and over again, you start to play similarly to each other. Kind of like if you go to a different English-speaking country, you start to pick up like the quirks of the English, like that different dialect, right? <laughs> always, 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 always. I'm starting to pick up that Rochester twang. Yeah, it's taken eight years, <laughs> but uh, it's getting there. It's something that I wanted to jump on the back of with regards to changing members. I, I, couple of the other groups we've spoken to, Loadbang and Windsync, have also gone through a couple of member changes over the years. How does that process work? Do you do auditions? Is it, I, I assume it's not like an orchestral musician where you put it in international musician and wait for people to send their resumes, or is it more of a word of mouth process? Uh, well, there were, we, we had a lot of conversations about how to approach it, and because a lot of string quartets, um, string quartets have such a strong identity. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that it's kind of scary to go through like a trial process with different players because those concerts are your what you're you know it's like yeah. they represent you um, and so we decided to do it all sort of behind the scenes while the previous players were still in the quartet and uh, we it was it was a it was a lot of word of mouth. Uh, and we were asking friends of friends of friends of friends to try to just get as broad of a, just to introduce ourselves to as many players as possible. Cause it's a real opportunity to grow outside of your little network. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And so we, we did hold an, a lots of auditions for each one. We did them one after the other. So first we auditioned, went through the whole process with the cello position and then with Jay went through the process for violin. Um, so it was funny, like auditioning and players playing with a cellist who we had never really played with, you know, we had never performed with. Oh goodness. <laughs> yeah. That must've been really interesting. Cause I, I, I imagine it's, it's got to be different from the orchestral audition circuit. Cause it's got to be more personal because you're a small close knit group. So I imagine personality counts for a lot more than it perhaps does in an orchestral music, uh, orchestral musician, orchestral audition. <laughs> Yeah, well, a lot of our uh, time spent together is uh, at, uh, you know, in airports and mm -hmm. minivans, uh, just eating meals together. Uh, we tend to sort of do everything together. A lot of quartets are very separate, you know, mm -hmm. different. They arrange their own travel. We always fly on the same flights um, and and drive together. And, it, and it's great. Like, we don't we don't get into sort of bickering fights. Like, we, we remain in each other's good. Yeah, can I ask a kind of a, just a, a funny question? Um, yeah. I wonder, uh, did you guys can contemplate changing your name, or did you 
like know that you were just going to stick <laughs> with it as you kept going. Um, for those who don't know, actually, Jack is, um, it's an acronym for the first letters of each player's name um, uh, of the original of the founding members. So the reason we did that is because the first piece we played while we were at Eastman was Helmet Lockenmann's third quartet, which has a subtitle, Greedo, which is an Italian word meaning to oh. scream, but also is an acronym for the first names of the Oditi Quartet when he wrote oh, it for them. Oh my goodness. So our founding cellist, Kevin, always joked back then that if it had been written for the four of us, and we weren't a quartet at the time, just four friends, that it would be called Jack. And then when we decided to to really be a, like a band, then we just kept with the name. But yes, Adam, uh, we did talk a lot about it. And, you know, because we're organized as a nonprofit, we're incorporated with the state of New York, and um, we have, you know, federal status. And um, we felt that the brand sort of outweighed the meaning of the brand. And so we, a little bit, we, we, we haven't officially rebranded, but we've moved away from the acronym. It, it's like an homage to the original players, but now it's just it's just Jack. The next thing I wanted to ask you about was um, about collaboration specifically. Um, and, you know, I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about uh, your strategies for collaborating with the people that you see every day, but also how that collaboration changes with new colleagues. Because um, I know that you work a lot with composers very closely by nature of what you do. Um, and uh, as I understand it, you also work pretty closely with um, other performing artists as well. So. Yeah, well, I would say that for both the collaborations, the regular collaborations, and also like the one-time or less frequent ones, uh, what I find is best is to have time or to build in a lot of time so there's no sense of rush. Uh, with the quartet, and we play together all the time, um, we work best when we are, well, when we do have deadlines maybe, but where we're we can just exist in the time that we need. So on any given day, maybe we're more or less focused, but rather than always trying to be focused and always trying to be efficient, um, we just build in enough time to get what we need done um, and feel good about it. And not every day is perfect, but, but if we don't have that time, we sort of close down, um, stop communicating because it's, it's too distracting to communicate or, you know, like we don't feel comfortable doing that and I kind of feel just in general if you if you have enough time in life with anybody to to collaborate on something then you can come up with something great um, and just sometimes that deadline can can help sort of push you but um, with with new collaborators I think time is even more important because some some artists we work with really value and and thrive on sort of abstract art making um, in the moment where maybe it's more descriptive and not so much in the notation that we're seeing, but in sort of the poetry of their imagination. And to get that conveyed to us in a rehearsal sometimes takes a while. And sometimes, honestly, we will workshop something or try something out that has really no relation to the final product. But if we hadn't done it, then we wouldn't have had the journey to get to where we, we eventually do. And that more and more, I think because we are allowing that to happen, we're, we're, we're exploring new territory and growing as a quartet in a way that I think is much more um, exciting and, 
I don't know, uh, gets our like creative mind working than than just sort of preparing like a really hard score that we received in our inbox. So moving on to the actual performance side of things, how do you create and develop a variety of projects that take you from very traditional venues like Carnegie Hall uh, to something a little more off the beaten path like the Bali Arts Festival? Mm. Yeah, well, really just being friends with composers has has led us to everywhere we've gone, I think. Um, you know, we formed with a mission to to commission and develop new works with with composers and to expand the string quartet repertoire and just by sticking to that it's taken us in so many different directions because we're not limited to any one style um in the beginning uh we were sort of like you could call us up and we would play your quartet you know like what and we would do any any play any piece at any time we were completely game and then as things got busier and busier we had to actually sort of curate that a little bit more you get uh, to be a bit pickier a little bit pickier but just for the logistics of time like uh if if we're ever not able to take on a project it's really it, it usually comes down to we don't have the capacity to do mm -hmm. it because we do have the interest because i know from experience that i might not think that a project is going to be so, super fulfilling but then it ends up being extremely fulfilling um and so i just sort of expect that from any project I don't know. I mean, I think that cer certain composers have communities and uh, relationships with presenters. And so they can sort of, you know, because we work with X composer, then maybe we'll play on a concert of their music at Carnegie Hall. Okay. Um, okay. That makes sense. But similarly, that's why we'll play in like the Bali Arts Festival, which was the product of a collaboration with um, a composer from California and this gamelan and in, in bali we went there and like we were outside of the city like collaborating and just like really having a really thorough exchange um we weren't we weren't playing our instruments hardly at all the way we normally play it was it was a really it was really great that's amazing that's really really cool that that leads or segues quite nicely into my next question which is what is the strangest gig you've ever done as part of jack it's a really good question um my mind is so warped i'm not even sure what <laughs> um for me the strangest thing is to like play a piece to perform a piece by a composer i've never met honestly oh goodness it, yeah it feels so foreign to me like i don't know anything about this piece and of course i have so much history doing that being classically trained i know exactly what it was it was the elliot carter string quartets i never had a chance to work with him and we took mm -hmm. on the project of all five of his quartets i can like palpably feel the disconnect with those pieces that i don't feel with pieces by friends you know, can I, I'm just going to chase up on that a little bit. So I remember uh, a couple of years ago when we were talking about, um, I think you were headed to Japan maybe, and you had been <laughs> asked to perform Beethoven. Um, <laughs> and I remember you saying that that was a particularly bizarre experience yes. for you guys. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. So part of playing new music is that we're released of all the baggage that classical musicians normally feel with the repertoire. Um, that we've had so many lessons and coachings and listened to recordings that there's in our minds like an, an acceptable way to play something. But when when I'm playing something by like a friend who wrote a new piece yesterday, I don't have that baggage. I'm just I'm just like going for it. 
and in in less formal uh, situations, I can tap into that freshness when I'm playing older music. Um, but this was a situation where we somehow got mixed up uh, playing on Maurizio Pellini's concert series called Pellini Perspectives, where he programs contemporary music and then comes out and plays Beethoven piano sonatas. And of course, he's like this like old Italian master in his 80s, maybe 90s, I'm not sure. And like he would fill up these concert halls with thousands of people who came to hear Beethoven, but then we would walk out on stage and play Lachenmann. Um, it was really funny. You could you could like sense like what? Why are these? <laughs> what are these people doing? <laughs> That's not Beethoven. <laughs> and after several of doing that of that format, he asked us to do two concerts where we would pair Beethoven with 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 newer music. We did two concerts in Tokyo, and we just sort of felt like, well, if Maurizio Pellini asks us to play Beethoven, like we have to play Beethoven. But I don't know if it was entirely rewarding because. I know from experience that performing Beethoven, especially as like a, in a chamber setting, gets better and better. The more you're like, you get more flexibility and ownership over it after several performances. But we were obviously not going to have more than one performance of these quartets. Um, so our first performance was like, you know, this pinnacle performance, and I would I would never do that to myself normally in any other with any other piece. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure that the interpretation itself was also particularly interesting, just given your Absolutely. entire background. So um, so the next question we wanted to ask you was um, about the Jack Studio. And um, it, I'm interested in knowing a little bit about um, how this came into existence as a project. Uh, actually, maybe you could speak a little bit about what this project is as well. Um, and then... Um, and then if you don't mind sharing a little bit about how one goes about funding a program like that, because um, I imagine that a lot of our listeners would be interested in knowing what um, uh, an established organization like you would do in order to set up that kind of funding stream. Yeah, um, well, I'm really happy to talk about Jack Studio. And I think to preface it, I wanna talk about another program we have called Jack Frontiers, which we developed first, which is, a homegrown concert series in New York where we have full control over the curating. Um, and it, it, surprisingly, we were playing like 15 concerts in New York every year, but none of them were our own concerts that we were artistically in control of. And so we developed this. We, it was a, uh, two concerts and we had four commissions. We lined up all the commissions and, you know, these things take so many years to prepare. And so we, you know, and then we launched our first one. But uh, right before that, we were, you know, we were we curated and commissioned composers that we knew. But we were thinking to ourselves, well, how do we meet composers that we don't know or that we don't know of? Um, it seems like it's not hard to reach composers because there's the internet, but it's almost it's paralyzing. There's so many links and ways to discover art. Um, it's still either it's random or it's still like trapped inside of our bubble. Um, and so we wanted to create like a call for scores type situation and we called it Jack Studio. Um, the idea is that we offer six artists, uh, $5,000 commissions each. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, to create a new work for us and then uh, 
and then also plenty of workshop time and we would pay for all travel expenses coming to New York um, and then we'll record the pieces perform them in New York City um, and and we also hook up the artists with mentors of their choosing um, so if they want to work with George Lewis then we can match make them uh, and we had all sorts of requests for mentors and I think we've so far of the six artists because we've just had one cycle so far um, I think there have been maybe about 10 mentors in sort of in rotation okay. um, yeah and we actually because of COVID turned it into a two-year cycle which makes so much more sense artistically so we can mm -hmm. really develop the pieces um, and so now it's like an overlapping two-year program and you, you asked how we go about, well, so I should also say that the mission of, of the program is to provide opportunities to artists who otherwise wouldn't have access to a group like Jack for whatever reasons, whether it's because of like deep-rooted institutional racism or just like economic um, hardship or the cost of going to school or, you know, there's so many, we go to schools and summer programs, but those programs are, are are inaccessible to many people. Yeah. Um, and also it's a way for us to interact with artists on the other side of the planet who just aren't, literally aren't even in this region of the world. Um, so we got, I remember it was like 443 applications from 45 countries. Oh heavens, that's reminding me of the OCA call for scores day. <laughs> I know, you put out a call for scores and those composers hear it. Yep. <laughs> But, so we actually felt so strongly about this that we just did it without having the funding in place. That That's bold. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. And very, very luckily. I mean, we would have just made it work, um, mm. but very, it was a stroke of luck that we received an award uh, from Lincoln Center out of the blue for $25,000, which basically funded it. For that's the, awesome. For wow. The first year. And now, now we're using our nonprofit to to fund it moving forward. That, that's a really incredible cool. program. I, I love that you guys are doing that. And I think it's it's very important because um, as someone who also does a lot of new music, works with a lot of composers, I do love working with friends of mine, but it, it's something that I'm looking at the roster of people I work with and there's not that much racial diversity and there needs to be. So I, I think this is a really wonderful program and I applaud you guys for uh doing what you're doing with it it's really fun thank you and it's it's been really fun for us and um and also the fact that many of the artists aren't necessarily like traditionally classically trained composers um like one of them is is actually comes from a dance background uh oh, and, I love that. <laughs> and, uh, but we've learned so much just from those workshops it's really like for our benefit to be working with artists from different backgrounds. I think it makes us like a, a richer and uh, stronger ensemble rather than just doing the same thing. Adam has heard me wax lyrical about this for years, but I talk a lot about the combination between theater and music and working with different uh, theater practitioners. I think it's important as artists, all of us should do interdisciplinary, um, have interdisciplinary elements in our art form because it just helps to take it to a different place and just enhance it for whether it's a visual or audio art form it's very very important 
you guys have uh, recorded a fair amount as your ensemble. Uh, can you talk about the process of taking an album from the initial inception to completion? Yeah, I think there are a couple of ways that we generally make albums. One is when composers approach us about recording their work, which happens, I mean, in our corner of this music world happens a lot. And often composers will have funding from a grant or an institution to, to do this. And maybe we'll have, we'll record one piece on a larger album of mixed repertoire, mm -hmm. like a composer portrait or something. Um, um, in several cases, uh, we'll do a composer portrait disc that is a full disc because there's so many string quartets or there are longer works or, or concert length works. Um, and so those, those end up having more of like a Jack um, brand attached mm -hmm. to them rather than just being on a mixed CD. Um, and then there are albums that we conceptualize and curate. Still, it's usually somehow connected to composers and the opportunities they have. Um, but we've had more and more luck in recent years applying for recording grants, um, which usually fund like 50% of an, of an album. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, and then actually now, because of COVID, we're primarily just a recording group now. We... Oh, yes. The 2020. <laughs> I cannot wait yeah, to say right? 2020 is hindsight. It's going to be great. <laughs> well, it's neat uh, because uh, so many of the presenters that we were working with in the spring and in the year ahead um, have agreed to convert our performances into recording projects or streaming projects. Oh, wonderful. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it means a lot to us because we retain the work. Um, and the music making, we're going to just have this plethora of recordings. But I think that the, I suspect that the standard for recording is going to be different because mm -hmm. in the past, usually recordings were like these highly edited things. But now I think because people are doing so much more recording that I think it's going to swing back toward a little bit more of like a, not live feeling, but like a live-ish. Yeah, it's something that's a, a bit more natural for one of a better term do you feel like that's a that's a positive development <laughs> uh yeah i mean i i'm i am a sucker for recorded like highly produced recording i think it's fun you know like especially like super pop music you know it's like it doesn't sound real at all when you're listening to it and it's sort of like a letdown if you go see like katie perry live <laughs> No offense to Katy Perry. But, you know, like, it, it doesn't sound anything like what the production makes it sound no, like. No, no, yeah. Um, but for a string quartet, I think I think it mostly does. It's just in the details. That's like the, our, I know that our studio recordings are, like, inhuman when I'm really listening to the fine details. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I think we all have this conversation about, you know, the, the recording ideal versus the, you know, the real life performance ideal. Um, but, you know, I certainly, I'm from my own perspective, I actually quite appreciate it when recordings have those little things in them where I'm like, it's nice to hear someone be yeah. human, you know, yeah. <laughs> if music is an expression of humanity and of the human condition, then, you know, it only stands to reason that there would be some kind of grittiness to it. But that know? being said, when it's you in the recording booth, you always feel the pressure. Know, right? <laughs> yeah. In Old Jack, I think we would do takes and takes and takes. And we were also more eager maybe, but now I think we kind of have like a three take limit with anything. Oh, that that's really good. Do you feel like, but do you feel like that's more a kind of a, a result of where you are in your career rather than 
necessarily i mean is it is it an agent experience thing or is it more of a just you know we've already established ourselves and you know what is it that we're trying to necessarily prove um, i don't think it's an agent experience thing because it's mostly jay's policy and he's the youngest one but i think one thing i have learned from doing a lot of recording i think we have 41 albums right now or something um good heavens i know it's, that's it's a, a lot good you've you've been around sort of officially for 15 years right yeah 2005 yeah that's a lot of recordings i hang on we're on zoom where's the little reaction thing here we go i'm gonna make a little yeah i mean it's a lot of recordings and and it's fun to record it's a it's a it's a fun process i Mm -hmm. I find um but i've learned that when i'm recording we're so as performers we're so like attached to the details of how something feels when we play it you know like you could go out and play a solo piece and maybe like you were a little tense or like your bow your rosin wasn't quite right or I don't know, maybe you had like just like the nerves or something. And, and so you just think it was a disaster. And then you listen to recording and it's like, Oh, Oh, it sounded great. You know, I was just feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. And I've learned that in the record, that's true in the recording studio too, that if I like, we'll do a take and everyone will be like, Oh, it was good. In my mind, I'll be like, Oh, it was my worst one. But then if I listen to it, it kind of sounds like all the other takes, you know, I just like, didn't feel great about it. No, that's the Lord's truth right there. <laughs> so, uh, uh, this kind of dovetails a little bit with the recording conversation, but uh, you guys do a lot of touring in a year. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you manage your programming and um, scheduling to avoid burnout. Yeah, burnout is real, but I f- find that we recover pretty quickly from it. Hmm. Um, we try, well, sort of, we used to have these monstrous rec- or rehearsal days, uh, usually four days a week we would rehearse from like 10 to five um if we were home and then when we're traveling we tend to rehearse like on a concert day we'll we'll usually like rehearse for three hours maybe other stuff that we're not even performing that night um just to take advantage of being on the road so that when we are home we can be home more but now i find that like we've we're not really worth anything after three hours of rehearsal we can rehearse more, but that's when bad things start happening. Like you start playing poorly or you have negative attitudes. Um, so we've learned that about ourselves, that if we can have half the day to structure as we like, then we're just happier and we actually play better. Um, when we travel, though, we do try to take advantage of that, of our time together. Um, like we'll use the stage time to rehearse something we're performing in two months. Yeah, we actually find in New York City rehearsing is very tiring because we all have to lug our our gear around and like our backs get tired and you're sweaty from the subway. And when we're in New York, I think we try to just not see each other as much as possible. That's fair. I should say that now we're in residence at the new school, at the Manus School of Music, mm-hmm. um, and which is in uh, Union Square in Manhattan. It's very central for all four of us. And so rehearsing went from being sort of a stressful thing because we would have to rehearse out in the outer boroughs to now we can all just meet in the middle. But also, like I said earlier, just being patient with each other and having the time is is important for us. So if, if we're not always rushed, then we can just end early and then we feel like we really accomplished something. Dovetailing into that, obviously the world has kind of exploded this year. How have you managed transitioning into the online realm online realm? And what strategies have you employed to 
be able to keep working uh, on the uh, same kind of intense rehearsal schedule that you had previously? Yeah, well, I mean, the beginning of the pandemic, we were really focused on relief funding mm-hmm. um, because we depend on the quartet for our livelihoods yeah. and to feed our families. And so there were there were just so many relief options floating around those first several weeks that required um, applications and then follow up things. And um, when that died down, we did start focusing on some remote projects where we were developing pieces with composers, doing like layered recordings one at a time, mm-hmm. which was in the spirit. Uh, you know, I think a good thing to be doing. Yeah. Um, and then I I sense that all four of us kind of just dipped for a while and and just relaxed into it, just accepted that we didn't need to be and really couldn't be a very functional chamber group at that time. Mm-hmm. There, We were doing like one project a week, but it wasn't anything near kind of like the level of like time commitment that we would normally be doing. Um, and then... And then when June came around and we were allowed to gather again, we just did. And we like, we like became normal again. And we were rehearsing just six feet apart with masks on. Oh, great. Okay. We did a bunch of recording and, you know, the one thing that's a little stressful is, is that recording costs money to do it high quality. And so now we're, we do have a recording studio that we like to go to. Um, but we're also having to seek out new funding to, pay for that at a time yeah. when, all when our- there's no funding yeah yeah that's really hard it's interesting that that thing of of you know not only is it trying to figure out your own kind of situation but now donor bases are just all out of whack <laughs> figuring out exactly where that's going to come from is an interesting project in and of it's itself it's going to be an interesting couple of years it's but I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. The pandemic is going to be the, it's now the time for chamber music. Like orchestras, mm-hmm. they'll come back at some point, but this is the time for chamber music to shine. So it's, it's going to be a, a good a good time in history for anyone who's chamber oriented, I think. Yeah, it is. It's great that we can be spontaneous. Yes. We can play a concert on a day's notice. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't need to travel or... Or anything. Don't need to check with the union rep. Right, right. <laughs> now, I will say that I'm so grateful in this time that we incorporated as a nonprofit when we did mm. like 10 years ago, um, because now we receive um, sort of general and robust funding from the state, the city, the even federal um, normally. And then there's all these additional relief things happening that we can take advantage of because of that. In addition to just general support from other arts foundations mm-hmm. in New York City, especially, and without that, without that structure, I think that our experience right now would be very dire. <laughs> it's stressful. I've been very lucky that I've had my teaching going through all of this, but it, it's for someone who is essentially a freelance musician. I play with a number of groups, but it's more on a freelance basis. It's terrifying having that those tens of thousands of dollars taken away from you and you don't know when that's going to come back. Taking a little bit of a turn, um, one of the things that uh, I'd be interested to hear you talk about a little bit is um, just to talk a little more about the work that you do in your residency at Manus, but also um, the other educational initiatives that you have through New Music on the Point. And I believe that you guys have a residency at the University of Iowa 
Um, and I just, I wonder what your teaching philosophies and, and your kind of goals as, um, as teachers of chamber music, um, what those look like. Yeah. Yeah, we do teach. And so the new school that we're going into our second year now at Manus. Um, and that's, it's really a cool environment to be in because they're so wanting to explore new creative ways of, of teaching and learning and also exploring new experimental art. Um, so it's kind of like the perfect place for a group like us. Um, and then in the summer times, we do teach that new music on the point, which is in Vermont where 30 composers and usually like 20 performers come together and, um, uh, and just create 30 new pieces in addition to, I mean, so much music gets played there. It's so fun. Um, and we also teach at the BAMP Center for Arts and Creativity uh, uh, for a string quartet course with the Parker Quartet and the Eibler Quartet. Uh, so there's an early music, uh, sort of more uh, standard, and then new music. And and everyone, all these like 10, 10 preformed quartets come. Uh, and then we go to the University of Iowa every year, um, once each semester, to work with composers and performers. Um, not just on new music, but just on chamber music and the creation of new work. Uh, so all those things combined, I think, point to the same values that we have, which is uh, how to make music together, and then specifically how to engage with living composers, um, which I think are just those two focuses um, bring in like all the joys of music making, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, communication, uh, individual excellence and you know just everything you can think about related to making music sort of gets addressed through through all that work combined. In light of this uh, can you talk a little bit about how you as a group are tackling the social issues uh, that both nationally and internationally our society is currently experiencing? Yeah uh, well I mean we've been talking for a long time about the social issues that are at the fore right now. Um, you know, we created Jack Studio as a way of providing access to people who don't normally have it, which means to us um, mostly providing access to BIPOC and Alana composers or, or artists who don't identify as being composers even. We recognize that we are part of this white supremacy and classical music. The ways that we can make adjustments uh, don't change that. What we want is to just do what is right and what is just. And um, there are some areas in which we feel that as a string quartet, we can make adjustments. One is in the programming that we do, um, representing artists um, whose music we play and also who we commission directly. Um, it's it's so clear to us when, that presenters are almost always asking us to premiere works by white male composers. Um, and so then a very long time ago, we sort of realized that, well, if we're gonna combat that in any way, then all of the commissioning that we arrange basically has to be non-white male composers, um, just to achieve any kind of balance with that built-in um, system that we're dealing with. I think actually do think that that's changing, um, which which is very encouraging. Um, 
But then also as a nonprofit, we have a board of directors. Boards of directors have many different roles for different organizations. Sometimes they give funding to the organization directly. Other times they give know-how or some kind of services um, or access to other people who can do those things. Uh, that's that's an always sort of a changing, moving target as boards change and evolve. But because of the funding issue, I think a lot of larger organizations, especially orchestras, depend on on like older white money and therefore yeah. the leadership is is that and then we also have a staff which is us <laughs> and we have a managing director also um so it's a five-person staff and because okay so you have a separate managing director who's not part of the quartet mm-hmm. yeah julia Bunke is her name she just started in july but because that staff is sort of fixed and small there's it's um we recognize that there's not a lot of room for change Mm-hmm. in that department of our um which i feel bad about and conflicted about but i'm also a part of it and, uh programming board of directors and our staff yeah i think and then just our community and how like who we associate with and who are who we're lifting up as a as a quartet i think is really important and it's hard to talk about it because it sounds so sort of like opportunistic to be like we're going to be making these changes and, and uh, you know, find balance. Because that's not really what's motivating us. We just want to, like I said, be a part of a society that is doing the right thing that represents our, our nation or our city or our community. Thank you for that. I think that was very poignant and incredibly important for everyone to hear. So thank you for explaining that. I'm interested in knowing a little bit about what roles each of you play in the administration of the quartet. Um, and, you know, do you find that it ostensibly kind of falls more on one person or do you distribute roles a little bit more evenly? Do you guys have active conversations about that or is it just working out beautifully and, you know, you don't even have to think about it? All of what you said. Yeah. Um, historically, I was the person who did most of the administrative work, like getting the ensemble incorporated doing the finances publicity and um, booking details and then over the over years we parsed up the responsibilities in ways that felt natural to us rather than like forcing skills on each other uh, that we didn't have um and we really with this group settled into a really good balance of um austin focusing on fundraising jay focusing on artistic administration like working with presenters on programs Chris focusing on the finances, and then I was sort of just doing everything else, um, which is a real hodgepodge. Um, but then we got this grant from New York State back in December to hire a managing director to sort of to increase our capacity so that we could like we can do programs like Jack Studio and Jack Frontiers and our programming, um, and and really throw ourselves into it artistically without having to spend five hours a day doing the administration, which is sort of what it normally is. I've got to say, I, it's really interesting hearing you say that you were the admin person. This must be a viola thing because Adam is always our admin king. So <laughs> I really appreciate that. 
It does seem to fall on on um, on violists a lot because I know John knows um, Ashley Gordon, but she's another person who I'm just going to shout out right now, um, who does a ton of administration in her life and was the real kind of inspiration for me in my life. It is ironic, actually, how that particular instrumental role seems to somehow play. Yeah, there should be a study. I just have a uh, small life hack, life skills question to ask, and that is what what advice you would give to young musicians interested in pursuing a career specifically in chamber music, but just in general, a similar um, career track to what the Jack Quartet have done. I think the best advice I could give is the best advice we received ourselves, which is from David Harrington, who founded the Kronos Quartet. He told us in an er a workshop that we did early on, he said, just play as much as you can perform as many concerts as you can and for commission pieces for he always said like just commission a composer using a box of donuts you know like <laughs> whatever you can do just like make it happen and i i really think that without that without that kind of energy of just going for it that then the other things it's much harder for things to fall in place so like presenters recognize you as being like a busy chamber group, then you get bookings. And then mm -hmm. because you get bookings, you need a booking agent or, you know, and then you need like a accountant or something, you know, like all those things start to like fall into place because you have, were perceived as being a busy ensemble. Um, but then artistically playing together all the time is well really fun. Um, but it leads you into so many directions. You, like I said in the very beginning, we you meet all these composers, and then they get you opportunities in different places. Even if you're not working with living composers, you play for different audiences, and then you know they recommend that you play somewhere else, or you just never know what'll happen. But one thing you do know is that nothing will happen if you're not doing the thing. Um, so it sounds really basic, but just play a lot. What positive professional experience do you want to take away from your COVID-19 isolation? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I think I would actually, I've already talked about it, but being a nonprofit has, is what saved us through this time or has helped us get through this more than anything else. Not just being a nonprofit, but being a nonprofit that has broad support from foundations and government. It's out there. It's something that any any American ensemble can do. Um, there's nonprofits in other countries as well. They're just slightly different. And so at this time when all of our, when we are not capable of performing on stage together, we're still able to feed our families. Thank you so much, John. This has been an absolute delight. Uh, wonderful lovely listeners you can check out all of jack quartet's socials and websites and all sorts of things down in the show notes please do follow them and uh, give them a little bit of love and thank you again so much for just such a wonderful conversation and i'm i'm sure that everyone has taken something away from that well thank you so much for having me
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, we hope that you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Roderkus, as arranged by Christopher Otto, and by John Luther Adams, and performed by the Jack Quartet. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.